All right, let's go to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some physical Bible scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that's really, really simple. It's an obvious, simple thing. Uh, we believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but at the top of the list for all those really awesome, important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. And so to be digging after knowing him in the scriptures is the most fruitful place to find him. And so to not have that in your lap as you're chasing after knowing him is just like a bad way to run that route. Um, And so if you don't have a Bible that you can call yours, take that one. I'll call it the best part of my week. Um, So we are a few weeks now into uh, an effort on our part to uh, look at and discuss uh, what's called the the Letters to the Seven Churches, all right? Um, And it's a collection of letters uh, at the beginning of the book of Revelation uh, that Jesus gave to, wait for it, seven churches, tell you all the time. We, we Christian folk, we're, we're really, really clever when it comes to naming things, um, case in point. Uh, no, I'm sure you already know this, but uh, like over the last couple of weeks, we've, we've kind of been digging into, uh, we, we looked at all of chapter one, right? Uh, we looked at all of chapter one where Jesus uh, shows up in a vision to the apostle John. And as soon as John has recovered from being just blown away by, the, by staring at the presence of Jesus in all of his glory, uh, as soon as he kind of gets back up after reeling from that, Jesus has him dictate seven letters that he wants him to send to seven very, very real churches in the ancient world. And so, um, and there, there are some folks out there really have really intelligent people who have really intelligent sounding arguments uh, for why those seven churches maybe ought to be seen as some kind of timeline thing. And they can maybe point to where, we at, where we're at historically in that timeline. Uh, and, you know, they would attach broader meanings to each of these seven churches. Uh, I'm not sure if those guys are right, but even if they are, um, whether those guys are right or not, what we can be absolutely certain of is that there are real people in real churches on the receiving end of these letters. All right? They've got things that they're pretty good at, and they've got a lot of things that they're not so good at. They've got real people with, uh, with things that they can celebrate and things that they need to repent of, right? All right? Uh, and so uh, they've got their own personalities and wish lists. They've got their own successes. They've got their own failures uh, within themselves and within their, you know, their ministry to their respective communities. There are things that they're good at. There are things that they're not good at at all. And so Jesus, as Lord of these churches, steps in to both encourage them and and to warn them. And and the warning is clear, right? Uh, Some of these churches have some cultural clout. Uh, We saw that last week with Ephesus, right? Some of these churches have some cultural clout. Many of them very much, very much do not. Um, But whether they're respected in their communities or they're not respected at all, uh, there's a time coming soon, according to Jesus, uh, when trials will be the norm. All right? And so Jesus offers them encouragement, but, and, the, and the, the encouragement points them past their immediate circumstance and onto a prize that's eternal and unfailing and altogether good. And... Churches, they aren't, they aren't social clubs. They aren't status symbols. So Jesus gives us this picture. He gives John this, this picture as he's calling him to write this letter of him walking through the midst of seven golden lampstands. This, it's a weird picture, right? But we're supposed to probably draw a couple of things from that picture. Um, 
one is that like these churches don't just exist for like decoration, right? They're not, they're not there just for decoration. Uh, Lord Jesus is the Lord of these churches, uh, steps in to warn them. Uh, and, and some of these churches, they, they've got good things going on. They've got some bad things going on. Uh, but they've, they've got this thing that Jesus needs to correct. And so Jesus offers them encouragement, but then Jesus offers them some clear warnings. And while a couple of these seven churches uh, don't have their dirty laundry aired out for the rest of redemptive history, like uh, some of these churches do, uh, a couple of them don't, um, Jesus has some things to say about the five that, that do. Um, and so they, these churches, they serve a, a strategic purpose uh, for the king and the kingdom that he's establishing. And so we're given this picture, like I said, of Jesus walking through uh, seven golden lampstands. And we're told that these lampstands represent, supposedly, because we're told explicitly, that these lampstands represent the seven churches receiving this letter, Okay. All right, and there are a couple of points that we can draw from that. And one, uh, that it's really nice when a lampstand is pretty. Like, it's nice when a, a lampstand has a decorative purpose, uh, but, like, it, the reason it exists is to be a lampstand. It's the, the, a stand for the lamp to be on top of, right? That's how lampstands work. Uh, if the point of a lampstand is to get the lamp up high so that it can help spread the light through the rest of the room. Lampstands that merely exist in order to be decorative and not functional well, they're just in the way, right? And, and now, I think I could extrapolate that out. I think I could easily make the argument that the exact same logic can be applied to all the scented candles in your house. Right? <laughs> Merely decorative instead of functional. I would think Jesus says they're in the way. All right? um, don't at me, I got a verse. Uh, either light them or they got to go. But I think the second and far more important thing to draw out of that Jesus walking amongst the lampstands picture is that um, Jesus is the one in charge of where the lampstands go. They're his lampstands. Um, these churches are not an end unto themselves. No, Jesus raises up lampstands and Jesus tears down lampstands according to his good purposes, according to his whim and will, we could say. If a church is not who Jesus wants them to be, then Jesus has the sole right, and I mean sole right, to declare that they will no longer be a church. They're, they belong to him. And the explicit threat in what Jesus is talking about here is that if they don't change, if they don't repent of the things he's calling them to repent of, they'll take their lampstand away. They, they may be a group that calls themselves a church. They, they may get together on a regular basis. They may have a building and a budget. And they may have some things on the calendar that they call ministries. They may have leaders and, a, and a, even a membership process. But to Jesus, they're not a church. The lampstands don't get to define and place themselves. That's Jesus' job. And so these letters contain a lot of encouragement, but they also... They also carry a very, very clear warning. And both encouragement and warning come from the one who stands in perfect authority over them. The one who will sustain them during the fiercest of trials by his good pleasure is exactly the same one who will utterly dismantle them due to disobedience just as much for his good pleasure. They belong to him. Last week, 
Jeff helped us look at the first of these churches, the church at Ephesus. And, and while they had a lot that they could point to and celebrate, history, doctrinal faithfulness, great leaders, there was a clear refusal to allow false teaching happening anywhere around them. There was a lot that you could point to and applaud. Jesus tells them that none of those things matter if they've lost their first love, Right? Great, you've got all these things up on the the, the trophy shelf, but if you're lacking this, we got a problem. Their first love. We learned last week that it's possible to get a lot of things very, very, very right, even things that churches should want to get very, very right and be successful at. We learned that you can uh, you, that they can be nailing some very necessary and obvious things and still miss what is of utmost importance. That was the message to Ephesus. That was last week. It's time to turn to our our second letter. So who's it written to? We'll look at verse 8. Through John, Jesus says this. It says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. All right, so the letters to the church at Smyrna, which, cool, okay? Um, so, so what and maybe where is Smyrna? Well, in addition to being what is probably the funniest sounding name of the ancient cities, it is also by far the easiest to get to today. By a landslide, actually. Uh, Smyrna is nothing more than the ancient Greek name for what we now call the city of Izmir, Turkey. All right? Literally the same place. In fact, it wasn't even that long ago that it was still called Smyrna. Uh, The city dates back to at least 3000 BC, but they didn't change the name until 1930 at the end of the Greco-Turkish War. All right, so there are people um, alive today. They're probably pretty old, but there are people alive today who might actually remember when it was still called Smyrna. Uh, It was a Greek city demographically for just ever and ever. Uh, The Turks pushed them out at the end of that war uh, and kind of demanded that the international community start calling it Izmir, uh, which, by the way, is nothing but the Turkic form of Smyrna. And so really, they didn't like legitimately change the name. They just demanded that the international community start calling it the Turkish version of Smyrna. So it's the exact same place. And so if you're looking at a map of Turkey, Izmir is the biggest city on the western coast. Uh, It's about 4 million people, so think Boston. In fact, fact, you can get a direct flight to there from Boston. And so if you wanted to go to Smyrna, get your little visa, you get your airplane ticket, and you can go to Smyrna. That's really how simple that is. Um, When I was in Smyrna back in November, uh, we were taken to the ruins of uh, one of the ancient agoras. And agora is just the Greek word for marketplace. And so one of these ancient marketplaces. uh, And they had ruins that they had dug out of some stuff. And and so I've got a couple of pictures that I can show you. Uh, So... um, so that's the clock tower. That's the most famous landmark in Izmir. So keep going. Um, and so literally, they had to dig down into the city that's now on top of it. And they, they found passageways. Uh, they put some of these back together. Yeah, because some of them were toppled over. But they just dug down into the ground and all this stuff is underneath it. Keep going. And they stood some columns back up. There's a parking garage on the other side of those ancient Greek columns. And that's modern Izmir for you. All right, keep going. And so we got a chance to walk around in these kind of dug down in passageways and they, they let us just kind of run around for 40 minutes, 50 minutes, something like that. And I got lost at least twice, but it was fun. All right, keep going. And then I had a good time. All right, so 
So all of the other ancient cities uh, that we're talking about in these churches, that these churches are in, they no longer exist. None of them. They're archaeological sites that have been dug out of like the hillside, including, including the mighty city of Ephesus. All right, the grand Puba city from last week that we talked about, it ain't there anymore. It's just an archaeological site. You got to drive down the road from another inhabited place to get to where they dug up all the stuff. But that's not the case for Smyrna. That's not the case at all. Sometimes the hills um, are you know, close to other settlements that popped up, and, and, and sometimes they're not. The, uh, the, the, the case with Philadelphia that we're going to get to in a, in a few weeks, uh, there's a newer modern city on top of ancient Philadelphia, but there's no continuity. It's not like Philadelphia just lasted that long. Philadelphia died away, and then uh, things kind of got covered up by a, a thousand years, and then somebody else went, huh, this is a nice place to have a community, and so they started a community there. So there's a new modern city on top of ancient Philadelphia. There's, uh, there's a new modern city near Ephesus, but several miles away from ancient Ephesus. Smyrna just kept going. Um, now it's one of the largest cities in modern Turkey. But during the period that John is writing this letter, Smyrna wasn't so big. It wasn't like Boston. It lived in the shadow of mighty Ephesus. It lived in the shadow. And last week, Jeff talked about how the city of Ephesus was kind of the cultural and economic center for a lot of things. As best as we can tell from the history that we've dug up and has been handed down, Smyrna seems to have wanted to be Ephesus. They wanted so badly to get out of that shadow. Ephesus was big and important. Smyrna was smaller and bragged about how it was prettier than Ephesus. Small towns don't do that today. Ephesus had the, the temple of Artemis, a wonder of the ancient world. It had a massive temple to the imperial cult, which is like emperor worship, right? Smyrna, uh, Smyrna had those kinds of temples too. They were way smaller than the ones at Ephesus, but they bragged about how they got theirs first. Ephesus had more money. It had more culture. It had stronger politics. The shadow was a big one. And the church in Smyrna seems to have struggled with the same kind of frustration that the town did. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So Jeff showed us last week that the, that the church in Ephesus had a massive effect on the community that they were in, the culture of their city. Uh, the gospel went out so powerfully that those who practiced magic in Ephesus uh, made a grand show of publicly rejecting it. Right? They, they threw all their incantation books in the fire and they decided they weren't going to buy any more idols anymore uh, and were told that it put such a dent in the economy of Ephesus that all the idol merchants got nervous about it and started a riot we can't have this we can't have this at all and so they they start a riot and get paul pushed out of town run out of town what a story right Woo! don't we all want to don't we all want the gospel to cause a riot around here surely that was a story that was repeated all over the rest of asia right no <laughs> no it wasn't now the church at smyrna seemed to have a slightly different result Instead of being a force on the culture of their city, the church at Smyrna seemed to be pretty small. They seemed to have been mostly overlooked, except, you know, when they were being persecuted. 
We're even told that they were experiencing poverty. See, unlike their successful and culturally relevant neighbors to the south, the church just down the road from them, the church at Smyrna, was relatively unremarkable. And I think that there exists something, at least I know it does in my own heart, buried down deep inside of probably most everybody here. Um, there's an assumption that I don't know, it needs to be openly challenged in this moment, uh, especially with how we tend to try to judge things like church success in our own day and age. Um, it's easy to assume that the church at Ephesus was just absolutely knocking everything out of the park. I mean, uh, like uh, waves indicate movement, right? That's, that's the mantra of the church growth crowd. Right? Are, are people reacting? Keep pressing in. Um, but despite their success over several things, we're told that Ephesus lacked something massive. Here's the harder question to answer, though. Can the church at Smyrna, living in the shadow of mighty Ephesus and the church of mighty Ephesus, can they be called successful? Small? Mostly overlooked unless they're being persecuted? Experiencing poverty? Can we call that successful? Anybody putting those metrics on your evaluation form? Hypothetical question. If God were to call you to move to a town just like Smyrna and you were ready to check out your new church home, are you visiting Smyrna first or are you driving down the road to Ephesus? But while the, the church at Ephesus had some pretty impressive things going on, things rightly worthy of celebration, Jesus tells us exactly what he thinks of the church at Smyrna. At the end of verse 9, what does he call them? He says they're rich. Oh, but didn't Jesus just say they were experiencing poverty? Yeah. Yeah, he did. And so obviously he means something other than materially rich here. I think he means spiritually rich. Of the seven letters, five of them have some pretty serious critiques. We saw the critique for Ephesus last week. They lost their first love. But two of the churches of these seven, they're not given critiques at all, including Smyrna. Jesus offers them no correction in this letter, not, a, not an ounce. There's no, but I have this against you, which is the common refrain in these seven letters. That's nowhere to be found in the letter to Smyrna. Now, that doesn't mean that everything is perfect over in Smyrna. The church is still made up of sinners. Uh, from the leadership all the way down to the first-time visitors, anytime people are involved, churches are a mess. All right? That's how the science works. That's just the math of it all. There are groups of interpreters uh, out there who want to try to take this specific text and argue that churches ought to be small, that they ought to stay under the radar in their communities, culturally so, and that any kind of success, cultural success, a church might find in a community is probably just proof that they've uh, lost faithfulness somewhere along the way. There are, churches who, there, there are people who take this text and try to argue that. Um, I think that's reading far, far too much into the text, though. What... What we should, should take home from this, though, is that our definition of success in church life is often very, 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 very different than Jesus' version of success. Can we be honest about that? What we tend to put up on the pedestal and tout as the model, as the right way, as look at that guy over there, he's just nailing it. 
But we tend to put up on the pedestal and tout as the model of, 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 for how to do things in church life, often overlooks, and sadly, I would argue, probably even often denigrates incredibly wonderful things that Jesus is doing and celebrating. Small, mostly overlooked unless they're being persecuted. Impoverished churches. They, they can be considered spiritually rich by the one who is Lord over those churches. Again, that doesn't doesn't mean that they automatically are. But Jesus has every opportunity here to say, well, (laughs) you really should have had more of an impact on Smyrna by now, guys. He could have said that. He could have said, you know, I'm looking at your numbers here and it leads me to believe that you haven't been creative enough or, or haven't been missional enough. Have you considered kind of restructuring, retooling your leadership uh, so that you can have a, bring in a more dynamic preacher? Maybe that'll do the trick for you. Have you tried holding an outreach event with some door prizes that'll finally get people excited? Jesus doesn't do that. Those, those things aren't necessarily wrong. But if they were absolutely right, I think Jesus in this moment would have gone, I'm not seeing all the level of effort that I should be seeing from you. He's got nothing to critique here. In this specific case, the small, insignificant church is celebrated as faithful and pleasing to him. And that ought to put a check on us. There are seasons... I don't know if you've experienced this yourself, but as the guy who gets to be in charge of things, I've definitely experienced this. There are seasons when we feel pretty small and insignificant ourselves, right? Uh, am I the only one? I guess I'm the only one, right? Uh, we, we look at look down the road at churches that are way bigger than us, way bigger budgets. They can buy all the things they want to buy. They can do all the things they want to do. And we need to remember in those moments that Jesus celebrates Smyrna. There are other seasons, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I've definitely experienced this. There are other seasons where things are going pretty well around here. And look at all the stuff we've accomplished. And man, we got people coming in and we were able to pay the bills pretty well. And we even fixed the thing that we needed to fix. Man, things are just clicking around here. Woo! We can look the other direction down the road and see churches that are considerably smaller than us. We look like Ephesian rock stars to those guys. I think we need to remember just as much in those moments that Jesus, King Jesus, celebrates Smyrna. He hasn't called us to be rock stars in any way, shape, or form. See, whether we're the big church or the little church or probably what is our lot, somewhere in the middle of that scale, our call is to faithfulness. Nothing more, nothing less. Whatever size and influence that King Jesus gives to us ought to be downstream uh, in our ambitions to that one pursuit of faithfulness. But there's another deeply buried assumption that I'm going to have to attack this morning, and we get our first little glimpse of it in verse 9. Jesus refers to their persecutors as false Jews who belong to the synagogue of Satan. So what's that about? That's a fun little sentence. Well, the earliest Christians were a group that were difficult to categorize for the Roman government. 
Uh, In in a political sense, uh, they were seen just as another sect of Judaism, uh, an offshoot that was somehow still inside of the Jewish family tree, uh, at least to to Romanize. Uh, The earliest Christians were Jews, right? Culturally, ethnically, religiously, many Gentiles had come into the church by this point, and that's probably the, the largest makeup of the church at Smyrna even. Right? But they still, saw, they still followed a Savior who publicly proclaimed to be the Jewish Messiah. Right? They saw Jesus and his teachings as the fulfillment of all the promises made to, in the Old Covenant to the Jews. Uh, even when they gathered together to worship and pray and read the Word, they didn't have the New Testament yet, or at least most of it. Right? It was the Jewish scriptures that they preached Christ from. All right? And so if, if you're a pagan civil official looking at Christianity from the outside, Christians are just a wing of you know, the other group in town that you already know a little bit about. You got some history with. And that's important for a couple of reasons, but mostly, mostly because the Jews operated with a little bit of freedom and protection in the Roman Empire, mostly uh, because uh, of previous blow-ups that the Romans handled very, very, very poorly, all right? And so they were like, back off and give them their space, all right? And so the Jews had a little bit of freedom in the Roman Empire, uh, and they were allowed to keep their own religious practices, and the biggest one is that they were often exempt from having to be a part of the local imperial cult rituals of a city. It's like, don't, don't force those guys to do it, it'll be a problem. They'll start a rebellion if we make them. So the Jews were opted out of those things. If you've, got a, if you've got a personal problem with having to do sacrifices to false gods, that's a big deal. So for the earliest Christians, being a part of Judaism, or at least being seen in the eyes of Rome as being a part of Judaism, that, that was advantageous for a lot of reasons. So if you're a part of the Jewish community, specifically in Smyrna, we know there was a considerably large one in Smyrna. If you're Jewish and you want those traitorous and blasphemous Christians to suffer a little bit, what do you do? You don't really have to attack them outright. All you have to do is bar them from entering your synagogue and tell the officials, hey, they're not really part of our team. Instead of just being hassled by the Jews, they can also be hassled by the Romans, and they can be hassled by the imperial cult leaders, and now every Christian in Smyrna has got a problem. If you're a Christian in Smyrna, your world is getting increasingly harder and harder to navigate. More, than, more and more people in your community are beginning to grow antagonistic to you and your cause. So Jesus says here that they are being slandered by those who claim to be Jews but are not. That they're actually a synagogue of Satan. So what does he mean? Well, regardless of what they claim to believe, Jesus says that the Jewish community in Smyrna weren't actually Jewish at least not in a covenantal sense. And what he means by that is the same thing that Paul meant by it in both Romans and Galatians. Galatians 3.7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. See, the New Testament teaches, I don't know if you've ever come across this, but the New Testament teaches pretty clearly that regardless of your bloodline and regardless of your family lineage, it is only those who imitate the faith of Abraham that receive the promise of inheritance that was offered to him. It's not your circumcision. It's not, certainly not your ability to keep the laws if they actually keep the law. No, Abraham was justified by faith, we're told, and the children of promise are those who look like their father. Those who hold the justifying faith that Abraham held. And so Jesus says 
to the church in Smyrna, actively being persecuted by the local Jewish community. He says, yeah, yeah, they're not really my people. They don't belong to me. They have a synagogue, sure, but Satan's in charge over there. But here's the assumption piece that we need to pick at this morning. What exactly do you expect Jesus to do about it? Right? Like, how do we expect Jesus to respond to a church that he sees as faithful? He's celebrating them. He doesn't have anything to, to, to pick at. It's like, oh, God, y'all guys are doing great, man. Good job. Jesus sees this church as faithful, and they, they just can't seem to catch a break in their local neighborhood, in their community. They can't seem to find a foothold for successfully reaching their town, a, a church that is actively facing persecution by another group that, let's be honest, should be loving and worshiping and pursuing Jesus. Like if they knew their Bibles better, they'd be all over it. I mean, don't we all kind of sort of assume that Jesus ought to swoop in and help the Smyrnian church out? Don't we all assume that Jesus ought to level the playing field so that Smyrna can finally catch a break? Don't we all have this deeply buried expectation that faithful churches aren't supposed to get knocked around like that? That blessings should be perpetually flowing and that for the faithful, it's supposed to be always onward and upward. I call that assumption into question now because (laughs) if you don't take a moment to at least consider the problem, Uh, You don't have any hope at all of understanding verse 10. So let's read it. Revelation 2, verse 10. Jesus says to this church, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus just said, hey guys, I love what you're doing there. I'm so proud of you. I've got so, so much joy for you. I'm so thankful for who you are. I'm so thankful for how faithful you've been with so little. You stand faithful even in the midst of opposition. I mean, you've even got those who claim to love the Lord uh, picking on you all the time, working against you. I'm so thankful that you, Little Smyrna, are one of my best and favorite churches. I don't even have anything bad to say about you right now, but uh, hey, listen, it's about to get a lot worse. It's about to get way worse. I know you're dealing with tribulation and poverty and slander, but what's coming next is more accurate to call suffering. Jesus says that many from this church, or maybe even everybody in this church, They're going to start experiencing not just some localized harassment, but significant persecution. Oh, but it'll be okay. Jesus Jesus says that it'll only be for 10 days, right? It's temporary. It's a test. And there's some debate over whether that 10 days is literal or symbolic for some other time period. But listen, either option seems to indicate imprisonment, that the imprisonment part doesn't last forever. Okay, cool. But then Jesus says, faithful unto death. Unto death. Church, there are two ways to get out of jail. You can walk out, or you can be carried out. 
And at least some of them, it seems, will finally escape prison through dying. Now, that doesn't mean that martyrdom is clearly, certainly waiting for everybody in the Smyrnian church, no. Nor do I really think that imprisonment awaits every single person who claims to be a Christian there, even among the most faithful. But it does seem that many, or maybe even most, of the true Christians in Smyrna will experience some form of this persecution. And that as suffering ramps up, people will begin to naturally sort themselves out. There will be some, there'll be some who, uh, who bow out pretty early on as the persecution ramps up. The first hint of escalation, they're gone. All right? uh, the whole Jesus thing is nice and all, but you know, it's not really worth that. It's kind of the, the mindset. Willing to put up with less clout in the community, willing to you know, put up with some personal ridicule once in a while, but not pain. I didn't sign up for pain. There will be others who want with everything in them to remain faithful, uh, but other competing concerns, noble concerns even, make it too unbearable to, to continue on. They've got to think about their career. They've got to think about the effect that it's going to have on their kids and their futures. Right? Uh, maybe they'll start to, to make some mental justifications happen in order to try to be strategic about it. And so they'll remain faithful on some stuff, but then there's this other stuff over here But maybe I don't have to remain so faithful on, and it'll cause the, the, the volume to be turned down for me. Me, oh, oh of course, I, I'm on team Jesus, but you know, I'm not like those other guys. There'll be others in Smyrna that as the suffering continues to elevate, they will remain faithful in everything that they're called to remain faithful in, in, in but for whatever reason, uh, the powers that be don't think they're worth the, the hassle. I don't think that it's worth their time to press back, and so mostly they'll continue to fly under the radar. God will protect them from that. Maybe they get hassled, maybe they get arrested, who knows, maybe even some physical abuse. But it's never long. Suffering eventually dies back down, and things go back to normal for a while. They'll survive. But then there are others. There are others ones that will be placed by those in power into situations where the choice is only binary. You will either remain faithful to Jesus or we will kill you. And I get it. That's a seemingly hypothetical situation that feels so far removed from our experience, right? But it's not actually hypothetical. It, it, it only feels that way to those of us who have never had to look that kind of situation directly in the eye. Open Doors International is an organization that puts together what they call an annual watch list. i got a map that I can show you here. Right. Um, and so they, they put out this annual list, and they rank countries and all that kind of stuff. And they collect data from all, the world, all over the world of persecution among Christians, and they compile it and rank those countries as, uh, when it comes to prevalence and, and severity. Okay? Uh, and so this map shows the 50 worst countries for persecution against Christians across the world today, as of last year, all right? Um, and so their data shows that in 2022, there were over 5,600 Christians who were killed for their faith. 90% of those came from Nigeria. Now, obviously, obviously not every country on this map has formalized 
institutional, government-led persecution of Christians. Many of these countries, I I can point to some of them like Mexico and stuff like that, many of these countries uh, are places where mob violence happens against uh, evangelicals and the government does little or nothing to stop it. But we're not talking about someone like losing their job. We're not talking about being ridiculed. We're talking violence. People killed over this. The countries that make up this map, maybe you you were a good social studies student, you can just kind of do the quick math in your head. The countries that make up this map, just 50 countries of the 200-ish countries in the world, they account for two-thirds of the world's population. Two-thirds. For the Christians in these countries, what we see here at the church in Smyrna and what's coming down the pipe for them, it's not hypothetical. It's not hypothetical at all. In fact, it's a very, very real possibility. And it has been a very real possibility for most of the church, for most of Christian history. But Jesus doesn't simply tell the Christians in Smyrna to, you know, that they're to you know, deal with it and move on. Like, sorry guys, uh, sorry there, sport, you seem to have drawn the short straw when it comes to, you know, where I've placed you in your walk to be faithful to me. That's not what's going on. Good luck out there, boys. No, Jesus makes them a massive promise. He says that the ones who are faithful even unto death, he will give them what? The crown of life. The crown of life. And that phrase should sound familiar to everybody who's paying attention during the James series. All right? James 1.12. I told you all then that there are two types of crowns in the Bible. Two different Greek words. Uh, the crown that you put on the top of a king's head, that's called a diadem. All right? Special thing. It's got jewels. It clarifies who is in charge. All the things. But that's not the word that James used back in his letter, and that's not the word that John uses now. They use the coolest Greek word in existence. Stephanos. Right. It'll take some of you a while to get that. All right. A Stephanos is a crown of victory. Think, think a laurel wreath. It's a prize given to the one who is found worthy. But not just uh, any old victory crown. No, Jesus promises to give them the victory crown of life. So follow me here. The, the ones who are faithful even unto death, Jesus promises to, promises to celebrate them as if they have won the mightiest of victories. The greatest of victories and their prize, their reward, is life. Worn as a crown. That's a bold statement when you're living in the shadow of somebody else's empire. That's a bold statement when you can look just down the road at people who are supposedly nailing it. You can't seem to figure out why you haven't gotten over the hump yet. What kind of life? Eternal life. Oh, wait a minute. Is Jesus able to give away such a prize? The answer is absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. And we've already seen how and why in this letter. Uh, we flew right past it, but I'll give you a little hint. Uh, you can always get an idea of what Jesus is going to talk about in each of these seven letters by looking closely at how he introduces himself. We didn't discuss it then, but it seems like a good time to discuss it now. Um, how does Jesus introduce himself to the church of Smyrna? Verse 8, the words of the first and the last who died and came to what? 
See, because Jesus was obedient to death, even death on a cross to make uh, uh, satisfaction for our sin, and because Jesus' perfect righteousness was vindicated in his resurrection over the grave, we saw two weeks ago, he is the one who's holding the keys. He's the one in charge. There is no higher authority in existence when it comes to life and death, and yes, even the life that comes after death. Jesus tells this church, guys, I'm so proud of you. You're, you've been so faithful. But listen, things are about to get a lot harder. It's going to become more and more difficult to remain faithful in the days to come. But those days will not last forever. And the worst they can do is kill you. Run away. <laughs> Go on. Hey, listen, I, I know that that sounds like a lot, but hear me. When it's all over, you can count on Jesus to be the one standing there to raise you up again to eternal life because he has already overcome death. I know it may seem dark right now, and the truth is it's actually going to get a whole lot darker. But listen, you can trust me because I am both the first and the last. And so in verse 11, Jesus says this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. No right-minded person, not one, should ever look forward to or go chasing after persecution. We have not been called to some kind of masochistic life for the kingdom of God. Not at all. But there is a certain otherworldly liberation that comes from knowing and, listen, deeply trusting that the worst schemes and devices of the gospel's very worst enemies can only ever reach so far. All they got is their arm length. Jesus' arms are longer still. They can only ever cause temporary suffering. Yes, even death. That's, that's a tragic thing. That they can only ever cause momentary setbacks to the cause of the gospel. Yes, even in contexts that, that seem to manage to keep the cultural influence and the gospel influence of a church kind of tamped down and small and relatively unremarkable. There's, there's a liberation that comes from knowing that the worst schemes of the worst enemies of the gospel can only ever cause a testing of the church and never a totaling of the church. For those who belong to him, church, for those who belong to him, our victorious king has already accomplished everything necessary to raise us up again to be with him forever. Even when your call to faithfulness leads to death. And so in a letter to a faithful church calling them to greater faithfulness still, Jesus says, the one who conquers they will not be hurt by the second death. The first death, it always hurts. Don't let anybody lie to you and tell you otherwise. The first death always hurts. That's why we're terrified of it. That's why we do everything in our power to stall it and try to avoid it. And... But hear me clearly, the Bible teaches that it's the second death that you actually need to be worried about. The second death is the one where those who are separated from Jesus are doomed to remain separated from him forever. That's a much bigger problem. It is far more painful. The Bible teaches that because of our sin, all people by default are separated relationally from God, that we are owed the just and right punishment for sin. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. 
But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love, that even when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that he makes us alive again by his grace. And so how does he do that? The eternal Son of God, the, the first and the last, we're told. He put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived sinlessly. He died sacrificially. He was raised again victoriously. And now as the conquering king who holds the keys, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that today, man. I'd love to be helpful to you. I'll be down front if you, in a moment. We can talk if you want to talk. What you waiting for? You don't have to taste the second death. You can have life instead. It's going to take giving up control of your life and submitting to the will and work of King Jesus. But what about those of us who are already followers of Jesus? How, how can we respond this morning? Same way we do every single week. We repent of sin. We lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, this week I think our response ought to take the shape of first putting to death our definitions of success in order to embrace and chase after Jesus' definition. Right? Like, we think we got a better plan than him? We're a better judge than him? But listen, secondly, I think it also means being intentional to see and cherish eternal victories, even if, and the hard part is even if, even if the pathway to get there travels through some less than desirable um, pathways. The crown of life is either a worthy prize or it's not a worthy prize. Jesus is either trustworthy to deliver on his promises or Jesus is not trustworthy to deliver on his promises. I don't know if we're in an Ephesian situation or a Smyrnian situation. I don't know uh, if we're going to have tons of cultural impact and influence over our next chapter of life as a church or if, uh, well, persecution is going to ramp up and we need to start getting ready for it. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. But here's what I do know. Whatever, whichever one King Jesus chooses to give us, in his sovereignty, in his goodness, in his great love for us, whatever he sees fit to give us will be for our good. And so let us be counted as faithful. That's the job. Let those who have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing another song, give you space to do something, put action to whatever head thing is going on in you. I'll be over there if you want to talk. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe that's, uh, you, you've been here for a while, but for whatever reason, you haven't been obedient to, uh, to, to press in and be a, a part of our church family by joining through formal membership. Uh, let's talk about that. We can, we can do something. Or maybe you've been following Jesus for a little bit, but you've never been obedient to, to Jesus and his command to be baptized. And so we can talk about that too. Or maybe uh, God's calling you to take the gospel to somewhere far away from here, and it's time for you to make that call public. Man, I love nothing more than to help you think through what next steps are, but whoever you are and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you so much for the scriptures, for a letter in Revelation um, that gives a little bit of encouragement to those who don't think they have it put together, but want everything in them to stand faithful. God, you haven't called us to be the big church or even the successful church. You've called us to be the faithful church. And where we get that right, thank you. Help us continue. Give us strength. And where we get that wrong, call us to repentance. Give us strength. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known? That you are the God who is worthy of chasing after and calling the great prize, even if death is on the line. Make yourself known in this moment. Open eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to know you. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.